This episode is sponsored by Indigo Ag, which enables companies to attain their sustainability goals by incentivizing farmers to be climate heroes. Carbon by Indigo addresses climate change while supporting farmers and communities. Learn more at indigoag.com forward slash green biz. And this episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy, greeting you today from autumnal northern New Jersey. Joel McCower is enjoying a little post-COP26 R&R. On this week's edition, how environmental NGOs and foundations are doing on diversity and inclusion, signs of progress on decarbonizing hard-to-abate sectors, and why Amsterdam is at the center of a circular fashion revolution. We're talking both style and substance this week on Green Biz 350. It's November 19th, 2021. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me today as co-host is senior editor Deanna Anderson, patching in from El Cerrito, California. Hey, Deanna. Hey, Heather. I feel like it's been a while since I've been on. I'm excited to chat with you today. It has been a while. So yes, welcome. Thrilled to have you. Um, it's uh, always great to have you participating in things like this. And in fact, I'm going to actually do a little precursor because I think one of the things we should be talking about in our chit chat is the fact that Green Biz 22 is in person. Yay. Yes. So exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll be uh, we'll be at our our uh, normal digs in Scottsdale, Arizona from February 15th to 17th, 2022. And I'm um, going to, like, as I mentioned, give a little precursor. You will be at Sidebar, Deanna, where you'll be. Uh, yeah. 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 I'll be replacing you or Sarah, whoever, <laughs> whoever I'm taking the place of. <laughs> I'm super excited for that opportunity and excited to talk to folks who we will be interviewing. Hey, one of you can replace both of us actually so <laughs> but uh, you know in all seriousness uh, sidebar is the uh program that we run uh prior to the event um live stream so those of uh, you who will not be there in person in arizona will be uh able to see some of the act well you'll be able to see all the keynotes plus some extras you get extras that the uh, in-person audience doesn't get uh, on the sidebar, and uh, your co-host will be actually John Davies, our senior analyst. So I'm thrilled. I'm excited for the energy and the new perspective that you'll bring to the program, Deanna. Um, but before we get to next year, and gosh, yeah, next year, which is close, we have a wonderful holiday coming up, the food holiday, <laughs> the celebration holiday. Yes. Uh, yeah, Thanksgiving um, for, for us in the U.S. I personally um, greet this one with more um, happiness and joy and gratefulness than the the, the end of the year holidays. It's, if, for this, this one feels more like family to me for some reason, but um, I'm curious, what are you doing? What would you have plans, Diana? Are you gonna be able to see family this year? 
this year I will be staying in the Bay Area mm-hmm. um, because there's only so much traveling down to Southern California where my family is <laughs> um, that I can do per year. But um, me and my husband will be making a lot of food. I'm going to try baking some bread for the first time. Um, I'm one of those people who during the pandemic has not tried to bake bread much. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. So like um, from scratch bread, of, you mean? Like, like, yes. Wow. Okay. Just like some dinner rolls. Okay. But I okay. think they'll be good. <laughs> All right. What All about right. you? What are you up to? So, um, yeah, we have some, some relatives coming down from Maine. Um, I, I am actually lucky enough to live near my, um, my husband's family, my, my sister-in-law lives literally four doors up for me. <laughs> um, so I'll be walking up the street with all my, my goodies. Um, and we have some folks coming in from Maine as well. Um, so I'll be seeing family and, um, enjoying them. I unfortunately won't be seeing my relatives, but hopefully a little bit later this year and, um, actually we'll be coming to the Bay Area in December and get getting to see actually for the first time in like two and a half years, my 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 little brother. So excited about that. Um, yeah. So that, that's our week ahead. So like, I think what we should do now, though, is talk about the week in review. So I'll get us started with the first story that I grabbed, um, which is one of the pieces from our Verge 21 coverage. It's a great and lengthy piece uh, from Ben Soltoff, who, who writes frequently about climate tech. Um, and he's written a piece on the things that need to come together for uh, addressing the hard to abate sectors. So sectors like steel and concrete, as well as the transportation um, uh, hard ones, which are aviation, shipping, and, and of course, uh, long distance trucking. Um, I, I appreciated this sort of, actually, I mean, this is something I follow pretty closely. So I, I was um, happy to see this all gathered together and understanding sort of where we are with these particular sectors. And I loved how he, he framed this. He, he, he <laughs> kind of explained why each of these things is hard and then, you know, why it's a quote, what he, what he referred to as a high hanging fruit, right? So it's not, not something e- easy to pick, what the solutions are, and then, you know, who's t- taking action. So some of the companies, so it's a great sort of, um, uh, you know, synopsis of, of people that are taking, taking measures to, to move ahead. I particularly uh, am appreciating what's going on in steel right now, especially in the context of the infrastructure bill that was signed into law this week here in the United States. Um, we're, we're planning a lot of infrastructure over the next five years, things like electric vehicle, ch- vehicle charging, but bridges like hard infrastructure that we, we haven't been investing in in many years in the transportation sector. And we need this, this lower carbon uh, steel and concrete to, in order to make that more infrastructure more sustainable. So I think it comes at a great time. Um, Deanna, what for you were some of the things that jumped out? Yeah, well, I just want to mention that I love the way that this story was organized (laughs) um, from an editor's perspective. So, um, and been answering all these questions for each of these sectors was super helpful and a great way for me to Mm -hmm. follow the story. But um, Mm -hmm. I think something Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about is like the reuse of building resources, which Ben touched on Mm. a little bit. Um, And it Mm -hmm. reminded Mm -hmm. me of a story that Lauren Phipps, our circular economy analyst, um, 
wrote last week related to a uh, initiative in San Francisco um, around reusing um, building materials, which will be a part of uh, the transition yeah. to a cleaner economy. Um, and I was also kind of thinking a lot about sustainable aviation fuels. Um, it's something that I feel like has come up a lot, especially with Verge this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something mm-hmm. that I'm mm-hmm. going to be paying attention to, even though I don't really cover it all that much <laughs> or at all, really. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you on the building materials thing. That's a great point. Um, you know, because retrofitting buildings is super hard, but like uh, there was a great story that was written a couple of weeks ago um, about a building um, that had been retrofitted and sort of the, the embodied carbon. I think that's super important to think about um, all the materials that go into the buildings and retrofitting definitely um, gets you to a better place to begin with because of that that reuse of the materials, but also things like, you know, how do you grind up concrete and reuse it and steel, recycled steel and so forth. So lots of exciting things happening. Um, this story is a little little taste of that. And um, thank I appreciate, uh, again, yeah, I really appreciated how Ben organized it too. So thanks, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so um, let's move on to the next piece. Um, and I wanna throw it into your camp. So we've got a couple other s- stories lined up, but what do you, what really, st- jumped out for you. What do you where do you want to take us next, Diana? Um let's go to this piece from Green 2.0. Um it's mm-hmm. called Environmental NGOs Inch Forward on Racial and Ethnic Diversity. Um and Green yep. 2.0 um it was an organization that was established in 2014 and they kind of take a look every year at diversity in the environmental sector and their transparency report came out this week. Um, and so they kind of looked at the demographic data of staff, leadership, and boards from environmental NGOs and foundations. Um, I think that it's really important to, to for someone to be taking a look at this every year because um, as we've seen in the last year, a lot of companies and organizations have really talked about stepping up when it comes to diversity. Um, so actually having accountability for that is like super important. Um, Mm -hmm. And in this piece, um, the communications manager from Green 2.0, Rivia Ismail, uh, spoke with their uh, executive director, Andres Jimenez, about uh, the takeaways from this report. And I mean, there's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot of data there. Uh, I'm not really sure where to start. Well, yeah, I, and I'm I'm sighing too because yeah, there are there are a couple of things jumped out for me. First of all, one of the things that I and one of the reasons I think this this research is so important is because so many of our listeners, corporations, partner with these environmental NGOs. They turn to them for help with programs on the ground in you know remote places where they're trying to decarbonize their supply chains um, or agriculture. And so there's a lot of partnership between the corporate sector and many of these environmental organizations. And if you're going to be partnering with those organizations, you need to understand how they are, where they stand on diversity. I think that one of the, you know, so for me, that's one of the reasons, um, you know, and Andreas puts it so well, when he said, when companies partner with other organizations, you are essentially co-signing the policies and practices of said company. So if you're, you know, you as a corporation or a pr- professional um, from a, a business are partnering with an NGO that doesn't have a, 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 a sound track record on diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think that's something that's a 
it's a red flag for me. Um, the other thing that popped out at me for, in this particular um, piece was the they write research that they did on foundations. And this is the first year that they looked at foundations, but like basically these environmental foundations that give money to other groups. And the thing that really kind of stuck out for me was, was how much of the funding um, was going towards white-led groups and organizations on the ground. So like these environmental groups are, are giving a lot of their money to the, and I forget what the percentage was, but it was like, uh, I mean, the multi-year funding uh, percentage number get, blew me away. Um, they, the research found that groups led by people of color received less than 1% of the multi-year funding with white-led groups receiving more than 99% of multi-year funding. That blew me away. I was just like, what? I, I, you know, and I, I, I guess, I don't know if I should be surprised. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just, I don't know if I'm surprised. I'm just flabbergasted. Yeah. <laughs> So. I felt the same way reading that line. And in my notes, I put that to shame <laughs> just because I feel like, I mean, I wonder, I mean, one question is like, who runs the foundations and like, who are they actually mm -hmm. in community with? Um, and I think that sometimes organizations who they know is who gets the money. So um, it's not super surprising, yeah. but it yeah. definitely needs to change. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. I'm happy that they looked at that. Yeah, I am too, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where that where that data moves in the in the next year because I think just even looking at it is you know something that gets people to think about it, and, and maybe they haven't been thinking about it, which is a like as you said, a shame. So uh, in, in any event, um, great research. Definitely take a look at the transparency report card by Green 2.0. There's a piece on our site this week um, uh, about it, and but of course you should read the entire report. So where do you want to take us next? Um, We're going to take you to your story um, about Rivian's IPO <laughs> um, and something. Yeah. So this piece is electric truck and van company Rivian. They um, had a record breaking IPO last week. Um, it, va it was valued at more than $100 billion. Um, and that is more than a market capitalizations for General Motors or Ford Motor Company, which wow. <laughs> um, when I read that, I was like, yeah. should I get into the EV business? Like, sh what should I, should I change careers? Um, can you share a little bit more about like reporting this story and like what stood out to you while you were doing this work? Yeah. So ironically, I was at, when I was at COP, um, one of the things I did was spend um, the day with the climate group. They had a a session on route, it was called Route Zero. And so it was focusing on uh, various uh, trends in the electric vehicle sector and also, um, you know, other types of transportation that was moving towards zero emissions. So I was actually uh, planning to write a piece about um, freight innovation. So like electric trucking and, and sort of the innovation that's happening there. We are seeing fleets starting to move that direction. And, um, you know, I so I was, I was, uh, you know, looking at that, I was also there was some some interesting news out of COP uh, on on heavy duty uh, truck and, and bus sales. Uh, there there was I think it was 15 countries, Canada, including Canada, the United Kingdom, Chile and New Zealand. They proclaimed that they will work toward 100 percent zero emission uh, new heavy duty truck and bus sales by 2040. 
So there was a big announcement on that. And then, uh, you know, and I was gathering all this great information because there were some really good panels uh, and some and some practical information, which I've buried in here in the story. Uh, but then, lo and behold, this company went public. And I was just like, and, and boom, I mean, they, and it, you know, you, you just mentioned that number and I don't know where they are as we speak, but they, they popped another, I think, 20% um, early this week. Wow. So like even this week there, I know, I mean, and, and I think, I think the only one that has a higher market value is, is, te- uh, dun, 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 Tesla, mm-hmm. right? No, right. no surprise there. But um, anyway, so for me, there was one really, really big thing that made me um, just particularly interested in this, uh, in this initial public offering. Um, what, and that was that um, Amazon, I mean, this is a, this is a startup that, kind of pretty much came out of nowhere. And then two years ago, Amazon said they would buy 100,000 vehicles, uh, primarily vans for the the prime delivery fleet. Um, and that, uh, that promise, that for, you know, future procurement promise, um, I think really helped make this company. And um, oh, by the way, I didn't mention yet, but Amazon, I think owns about 20%. Of this company, so it did pretty well with this investment as well. Um, so I, for me, that the the value of these purchasing commitments by big corporations that have that kind of power, and and that was like my kind of my biggest takeaway from COP was how important it is for large companies to send demand signals for climate tech to be to be saying we want to buy this. You mentioned sustainable aviation fuel a moment ago. And and that was another big thing that happened at the at the event as well. There were a number of commitments of by airlines saying that they were going to buy this stuff. And that really sends a signal that these are investments that other companies, you know, are, that are worthy of financing. So it helps venture capitalists um, get interested or banks, you know, that are going to finance a, the building of a facility. So um, I'm curious, <laughs> What, if you were going to go work for an EV company, where would you go work? Oh my gosh. Um, I probably wouldn't actually go <laughs> yeah. work for one, but um, mm-hmm. maybe it is mm-hmm. Rivian. I'm, I, don't, I don't know <laughs> that many. Um, yeah. 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 What stuck What stuck out for you on this, this story? I mean, something that stuck out to me, and I feel like this is a thing in every sector is that just like there needs to be customers who are demanding this. So obviously with these countries um, making their commitments, they're obviously a customer to Rivian and other EV companies. Um, A lot of systems that need to change need infrastructure in place. And I think that um, there needs to be obviously more government policy to like kind of bolster that and, I mean, I'm I'm just I'm intrigued by mobility in the transportation sector, and so I think that there's going to be like a whole systems approach that needs to take place with a bunch of people coming together to pull it off. Um, but clearly, um, with this IPO, there is a lot of opportunity for uh, EV businesses. Most 
of us probably associate the Netherlands economy with two prominent images, windmills, which were predominantly used for grinding grain and eliminating drainage, and the brilliantly colored tulips that are sold all over the world. More recently, the country has become a leading source of innovation related to this circular economy, especially for the fashion industry. Companies including the Renewal Workshop and Natural Fiber Welding have established their European operations there, and the historic city of Amsterdam is also home to Fashion for Good, the influential nonprofit organization. Greenbiz senior writer CJ Klaus had the opportunity to explore what's going on there in person over the summer. Her observations are the foundation for two stories we published this week. You can look for the links in the episode rundown. But meanwhile, she joins us here at GreenBiz 350 to chat in more depth about what she learned there on the ground. Hey, CJ, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Hey, Heather. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's great to talk to you in person after always editing your stories. It's good to see you. So let's start with some context. Uh, what's what's behind Amsterdam's emergence as a leading city for the circular economy? So I was there in Amsterdam in August, and it is amazing what's going on there with circular fashion. There is so much, and it's being driven basically both from the top down and the bottom up. What I mean by that is that the European Union has made circularity a pillar of their climate policy, and they want to be a, a fully circular economy by 2050. But the Dutch are pushing things even further at the national level. So, for example, they're aiming to cut the use of primary natural resources in half uh, as soon as 2030. Wow. And another thing that's happening is there's a proposal before the Dutch parliament that would introduce extended producer responsibility for textiles and clothing in 2023. So if that passes, it would make producers the brands responsible for the waste. Hmm. Yeah, pretty big. Yeah, it's huge. And that idea is growing throughout Europe. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Amsterdam in particular is prioritizing fashion and textile for a number of reasons, reasons that I mentioned in one of the pieces that I wrote. Um, and one of those is that there are a lot of international brands that have their European headquarters there. And there are also a lot of innovative, sustainable Dutch startups, entrepreneurs, and this is kind of where the, the bottom-up aspect comes into it. Designers, startups, nonprofits like Fashion for Good, you mentioned, they're all there collaborating and they collaborate with the local government too. Everyone's kind of working together. But if you want to dig even deeper, and I know you do. So I do. Why. I mean, like, yeah. So like, <laughs> why, why? So you gave me the reasons, right? So the policies are there. You know, what... <laughs> What about, I actually live, believe it or not, I live in a little town that was like Dutch. It's very, very Dutch. And it's- um, Oh, really? Yeah, it's, I, I didn't tell you this before. Um, and there's a certain mindset. So tell me a little bit more. I think, I think it has something to do with the social and cultural mindset there as well, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah, that's what I got. Um, it's a very practical mindset, not mm -hmm. to make sweeping generalizations or anything, but- um, yeah, they tend to be very practical people. And well, so circular economy, there's a nonprofit called Circular Economy. 
and they did a look at how circular the global economy is. Mm -hmm. And they found 9%. 9% for- Nine, single digits. Yeah. Not very. Nine. Mm -hmm. Right. That means that over 90% of the resources that enter the global economy are wasted. Hmm. The Netherlands, the Dutch economy is already at roughly 25% circular. Right. It's a lot. I mean, it's still a long way to go, but it's it's a lot and it, it, more than twice. So why? But, <laughs> why? Right. Well, it's what I mentioned, what I just mentioned. I think, well, first, there's something of an anti-waste culture there. People just tend not to buy a lot of crap <laughs> that they don't need, you know, um, again, generalizing, but there does seem to be something mm-hmm. of an anti-waste culture in this People who had moved there from other parts of the world mm-hmm. told me mm-hmm. that as mm-hmm. well. And then there's what I just mentioned. There's this kind of practicality. Mm-hmm. And what I heard over and over again is that this system that we have, the current global fast fashion, make and waste and fly things all over the place, it just doesn't make sense. Okay. It's, mm-hmm. it's not logical. It's not practical. It doesn't make sense. So I know you spoke to many people while you were there. So, uh, you know, what do some of them have to say about the mindset and how how this how this economy has started to emerge there? I want to introduce you to a woman who I unfortunately didn't get to meet because she was away. A lot of people, it was August, you know, a lot of people on holiday. <laughs> but we did speak on the phone afterwards. And her name is Ellen Menzink. And she is the founder of a company called Bright Loops Textiles. And they produce their own clothing brand, their own clothing line under the brand name Lupa Life. And they use to produce these clothes, local post-consumer recycled materials. So we're talking about the use and unwanted clothes that people drop off at drop-off centers or donate to the Salvation Army, all the stuff that people don't want. They take that stuff and they make new products out of it. And she had this idea to have a local circular apparel company five years ago. And she was met with a lot of skepticism. She said Mm -hmm. people kind of laughed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so here is how she reacted. How is it possible actually that people are not seeing this? It's so logic. Getting all your materials from around the world is not working anymore. Look at Corona. There will be more epidemic following. People will want to produce closer by. I was like really surprised that people were not seeing that. This was also the reason why I set up the brand, because I thought if I have my own brand, I can just show it. And if I can show that people buy it, that's the best way to to let other brands understand that they can make money of it. So my my response actually was setting up Blue Life to show that there is a the viable business case in working even with very high amount of local material and even with a smaller brand just stepping up. So basically, Ellen is something of a pioneer. She saw the situation. It's not working. She has this idea for a local circular because it's just logical, right? Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now with COVID and the supply chain issues that we're seeing, she's kind of been proven right. So when you think about uh, different fabrics, right, I think one of the things that many people already are are kind of focused in on with with circularity is jeans, denim, 
Um, and I, I want to ask you, uh, I know you had quite a few conversations around that while you were there. Why is, th- why is making jeans more sustainable such a big deal? And why in Amsterdam? So jeans are just horrible <laughs> for the environment. <laughs> oh, come on. I, I wear them, though. <laughs> I know. I love them, too. I love jeans. I do. Um, so I don't mean they don't have to be horrible. That's uh-huh. the, good, the good news is they don't have to be. It's just making denim more sustainable is super important because, okay, here's why they're horrible. (laughs) It takes (laughs) about, it takes by one estimate, the most common one online, 1,800 gallons of water to produce one pair of jeans, one singular pair of jeans. And another big problem is that a lot of, Producers are still using synthetic dyes, a synthetic indigo dye, and that's what gives the jeans that pretty blue color. And it contains a bunch of toxic chemicals like formaldehyde and cyanide. And these dyes often get dumped straight into local rivers where the denim is produced. So this is still mostly in Asia, in India, China, increasingly in Bangladesh. And it can turn the water blue, kills all the fish, it gets people really, really sick, seriously ill, and it's just a nasty, horrible mess. So the way to, to stop this is to produce jeans with natural materials, natural dyes, and mm-hmm. to make them more circular mm-hmm. so we're not mm-hmm. buying as many. We're not, we use the same pair for longer, and when we're done with it, we give it back, things like that. And Amsterdam fits into this because, did you know, (laughs) I did not know this, that Amsterdam (laughs) is the denim capital of Europe. I did not know that. (laughs) And arguably a world capital for denim. So they don't produce the most there because most of the production is still done in Asia. However, they have the highest number of jeans companies per square kilometer in the world, which who knew? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so you have names, big names like G star raw and scotch and soda that people may have heard of, but then you also have a lot of smaller sustainable brands like Kings of Indigo, Kuyuchi and mud jeans. All three of these companies are rated great by my new best friend, the good on you sustainability rating app. Hmm. So Have what is that app? Yeah, actually, what, I want to hear about that app. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going just, digress us for a moment here. What is that app? Yeah, this has nothing to do with Europe. It's an Australian startup, I believe. And basically, they have this database of all the brands that you can think of, really. Clothing, shoes, everything. And they rate them mostly on their transparency, what, you know, what, well, what they're doing and also how transparent they are about how they're doing it. Okay. So, so you mentioned a whole bunch of jean brands from Amsterdam. What are they doing with circularity? So the three that I mentioned, Kiyuchi Kings of Indigo and Mud Jeans and Scotch and Soda as well, signed on to what's called the denim deal in 2020. So this is a deal that involves local government, manufacturers, recyclers, and these brands. And they pledge to include 5% post-consumer recycled material in everything they make. Mm -hmm. And then Scotch and Soda, Kiyuchi and Mud have also pledged to jointly make 3 million pairs of jeans with at least 20% post-consumer recycled. 
And this doesn't sound like a lot, right? When I saw 5%, I thought, eh, 5%, even 20, yeah, you could do better. But this is not the post-industrial waste that's from the cutting room floor. And most of the time, when you see a brand that has so much recycled material, it's almost always post-industrial. That's the easy stuff. This is post-consumer, so the stuff that, that Lupa Life is working with the stuff that people have used and don't want anymore. And it's a lot more challenging to use these materials. Mm -hmm. First of all, you have to get the materials. So you have to collect them, sort them and rip them all apart. You have to rip everything apart. And so there's a lot that goes into that. And then the quality isn't as good as say virgin cotton, for example, because they've been dyed, they've been bleached, they've been stretched all these things that happen during the process, they've been worn. So it takes effort to make the quality better. Um, And then there's the big problem of blended fabrics, which have become really common. And that's something like cotton polyester blend. You can't use that unless you want to spend the time, money, and chemistry, you know, unless you can figure out a way to chemically separate those materials, mm-hmm. sort of like with plastics, you know, separating or, you know, the not plastic specifically, but packaging sort of right. like with packaging, when you have a mix of materials that make up the packaging, it's really hard to recycle because you, you have to rip them apart and right. they're melded together. Yeah. So of those brands, are is there anyone that's kind of standing out doing a little bit more than the others? Yeah. So all of that said, hard, not impossible, right? So Med Jeans is already doing more than that. They're already at 40%. Wow. And huh. yeah. And I, I met their founder and CEO, Bert Bonson at the company headquarters in Lauren, which is a smaller town out just outside of Amsterdam. And he basically told me that they just signed the deal to get other brands to sign on because <laughs> they're already ahead of it, right? Um, so they're pledging to do something they're already doing. Plus, um, another thing Mud is ahead of the curve on is the extended producer responsibility that I mentioned a minute ago they have a take back program and a leasing program. So they take back jeans that people don't want anymore. They lease products and that way they get this material to use for their new products. So I wanna let Bert explain how all of that works, but on just one little side note, when we met, he had just celebrated his 60th birthday. That's six zero for all you kids out there. We can still do it. The old (laughs) folks can still do it. Um, (laughs) And his voice was kind of like raspy and raw because I guess he'd been chatting a lot at this party that he had or singing karaoke or something. So, yeah, if he sounds like he has a cold, that's why. So we were thinking, how how do we get old jeans back? So one is you get a deposit, so you get a 10 euro discount when you bring back your old jeans. At first, it was only, only our jeans, but... Later on, we said that's too small. We also take back other brands now, <clears throat> as long as they have 95% cotton. Otherwise, we can't recycle it. Mm-hmm. And and we said, okay, if we, we think even further that if you have to be the owner or something, or is the product itself, the performance good enough? And that was at the time of the sharing economy and, and Uber and Airbnb coming up. We said, why don't we 
lease a pair of jeans and get it back after use. So that's how that started. The leasing system, if you want. It's only a 12-month payment, actually. And after one year, you can decide either to keep them longer because we don't want to push fast fashion. And our quality jeans are, are so good that people mostly say, oh, I want to keep them longer. But they can send them back when they want and then start a new lease, which is then cheaper because they send back their old jeans. That's the way it works. And we also do it now with shopkeepers. That they, they get sort of a commission on the, on the lease contract. And we, we sell now to 300 retailers in 30 countries. But in the US, you can't buy online? No, we try to prevent it because we think it's, um, it's ridiculous to ship back and forth jeans and right. all jeans back overseas. You know, within Europe, it sort of feels okay. But, um, but yeah, we, want to, we prefer to, to create a hub in the United States where there is also somebody that recycles all jeans, that takes back all jeans makes it into yarn again, weave the, the, the denim material, and then start making jeans. We would prefer to make all that circle there and do it locally. Make smaller hubs everywhere with, the, with, the, with our blueprint. So we're winding down this episode, CJ. Any last thoughts you'd like to leave uh, our listeners? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, Bert actually did tell me that they're speaking to a potential partner in the United States. So... Hopefully, we'll be hearing more about that at some point. You couldn't really say too much, but hopefully that'll work out and they'll have a partner over here so we can get some mud jeans in the U.S. Um, and on that note, another thing that I heard expressed over and over again is this idea of sort of being a model, both at the company level and the country level. So they actually don't mind doing the groundwork and others copying them, others coming in and taking their example and duplicating it, cutting and pasting, one person said. They really want us to copy them. Um, so, you know, all you fashion, sustainable fashion, circular fashion and textile entrepreneurs out there, go to Amsterdam, see what they're doing, get some ideas, and then come back and build it here. Great. Thanks, CJ. Uh, thank you for joining us here on Green Biz 350. Thank you. It's been really fun. See you later, Heather. And to those of you out there listening, go to Amsterdam, <laughs> go visit <laughs> and bring back some ideas. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com forward slash 350 for our weekly episode rundowns. Hit us up by email at the address 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And I'd be remiss if I didn't encourage you to sign up for one of our seven weekly newsletters. You can find the subscription links at www.greenbiz.com forward slash newsletters hyphen subscribe. Or you can just go to the uh, bottom of our nav bar on greenbiz.com and you'll find it there. Thanks to Deanna Anderson for stepping into co-host. We'll be skipping next week's episode to observe the Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States. I'll be back on December 3rd with Joel McCower. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, enjoy a restful and healthy holiday and we're grateful for your ongoing support. I'm Heather Clancy. Take care and be well. This episode is sponsored by Indigo Ag, 
which enables companies to attain their sustainability goals by incentivizing farmers to be climate heroes. Carbon by Indigo addresses climate change while supporting farmers and communities. Learn more at indigoag.com forward slash greenbiz. And this episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.